Okay, folks, this is uh, The Unseen Hand of the Matrix with Mr. Ralph Epperson. Hey, Ralph. Hey, Rick. good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Today's a day late and several dollars short. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's two days late. <laughs> because it's today's, is today Friday already? Yeah, it's Friday already. That's right. That's right. We did say Thursday and then we said no Friday. Because yeah. there's a lot of work in this. What I did was I made this in. I'll say that later. I made this into a DVD, and uh-huh. that's what I had to use. I wanted because I you can't you and I can't use a DVD, so uh-huh. I had to convert it to. And I've got some slide, uh, some books to hold up, and also pictures. I want okay. you to show these people are real. That's uh-huh. what it looked like when he was alive. Okay. Okay. All right, Ralph. So what are we going to talk about today? Okay, let's start. All right, Barack Obama. Boo. Marxist communist. From his own words. Okay. Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Horatio. Act one. Scene one. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily for knowing may avoid, O speak. I shall speak, Ralph Epperson, March 22nd, 2017, what William Shakespeare had Horatio say in modern English is this. If you know what the future of your nation is. See how she's a bigger bowler, Frank, and it's, oh, it's perfect. Or, yeah. And now, and that future is full of risks. You must speak. And I am Horatio. And I know, and I will speak. I, pres- I produced this as a DVD in 2017, and I didn't think anyone would upload it to the Internet because of the controversial subjects discussed. And the fact that the American people did not believe that Barack Obama was a Marxist, and therefore they would not watch my DVD. And the fact that President Obama has left office in 2017 and I thought interest in his eight years of office would wane and all of our attention would focus on the new president. But former President Barack Obama is still in the public domain and I think that the American people should know what he truly believes. 
This looks good. So I have prepared this brief examination of the fact that Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. I, it might be important at this point to provide you with a little background information about me and why I wanted to produce this presentation. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, but I am sorry to report that a high percentage of what I was taught at the university was simply not true. So I have spent the last 50 years of my life looking into the evidence that this nation is being taken somewhere and all that research has convinced me that where we are as a nation are going is not pleasant. I have put my research into a total of four books, 29 DVDs, and six booklets. I have been fortunate to have been a guest on two History Channel productions. Named The Secret of the Dollar Bill and Secrets of Our Founding Fathers. I also want you to know that I have no staff working for me, no researchers doing my research for me, no confidential sources are sending me information, and no one is funding my work. I am solely responsible for what you are about to hear and see, see and hear. I will be mentioning the books I have used to prepare this presentation as I progress through them, this material. And lastly, I would like to ask each of you to serve on a jury. That means that I am urging you to be open and listen to the evidence before you reach a verdict. It's only fair. Because I am convinced that this material will be perhaps the most important speech you will ever hear. Let me now start the discussion of the evidence that proves that Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. It is commonly known that President Obama believes in a system of taxation where the taxpayers will pay an increased percentage of their income as it increases, and that the rich will pay the highest percentage. This is called a, graduate in a graduated income tax. It is nearly impossible for me to believe that Obama does not know that the very wealthy have tax-free foundations and those that do pay no income taxes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's pretty clever. Those tax-free foundations were created before the 16th Amendment. Mm -hmm. and that, was that figures. But Obama is not the originator of a graduated income tax. The idea is at least 185 years old. It was Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism, and he is the modern source of the graduated income tax. 
This is how he put it in his book entitled The Communist Manifesto, written in 1848. Uh, hold up the book, Ralph. I think you have it there. Yeah. This is my cover just because it's a... It's a okay. Yeah, The Communist Manifesto with Marx and Engels on the cover. Yeah. I, want, I want you to see that I'm doing this with documentation. Right. There was some more on the bottom of that page. Okay. He discussed the ways he could destroy a capitalist nation to convert it into a communist nation. By the way, at the very bottom is a page number, and sometimes you'll see uh, a page 17. It's on page 17 of that book that we just looked at. Right. Read that as well. That's okay. the way I'm documenting. Right. Okay, I will. Um, he provided a platform of 10 planks, and I wish that to only discuss one of them. This is why he wrote, in the most advanced countries, the following 10 planks will be pre pretty gradually, pretty generally applicable. <clears throat> and the second plank was a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. He summarized the reason why he wanted to tax the very wealthy in his... <clears throat> Excuse me. Critique of the Gotha program written in 1875. Hold up the book, please. Okay. Capital and Other Writings by Karl Marx. Includes Critique of the Gotha program. Wow. Uh, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is that the book that's called Das Kapital? I've never read it, no. Oh, okay. I thought that was the name of it, Das Kapital. Of what? Maybe in German it is. Uh, yeah. whatever. I, I, I've heard it as a separate book, but that's, I've, the Commerce Manifesto is what everybody could buy one. There's cheap and expensive. And right. That's what I use. I've never read Das Kapital. I once read that something like 95% of what Marx has written is buried in the libraries. Really? They want us to know what he really thought. Huh. Except the garbage. Right. I wouldn't doubt that's true. Uh, to each according to his needs. So Marx envisioned as a, com a communist that the wealthy owe the a high percentage of their income to those who have needs. So the communist vision is to use government to take from the rich and give to the poor. And this is also the same vision of Obama who believes in a a system of taxation that takes from the rich to give to the poor, meaning he favors the communist proposal of using government to take from one who has earned it and giving it to someone who has not earned it. Yeah, yeah. I used to feel that in my paycheck every week. Yeah. Uh, you might remember the conversation he had with a, someone who has been called Joe the Plumber during the 2008 presidential campaign. Obama told him, uh, 
I think when you spread the wealth around, it is good for everybody. I will ask you, what is the difference between these two philosophies? Very little. Right. Karl Marx wrote, from each to each, and Barack Obama said, spread the wealth around. Same difference. I should say by force. Right. And I would think you would have to agree there is no, no difference. Both take from the, take from to give to another by the use of governmental force. Oh, there was a page number down there, Ralph. I didn't read it. Oh, is there more? I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, page, yeah. Go, go up, please. Up some more, please. No, up. No, I'm sorry. Go down. Okay. Yeah, raise the paper up. I mean. Okay, very good. Okay, and I can't see it yet. Got to go up some more, Ralph. A little more. Okay, page 38 and 267. No, I don't understand what happened. Take from one to give to another by the use of government force. Right. Like 82,000 IRS agents, right? Yeah. And you're probably armed. Yeah, exactly. That's just to threaten you. I don't think they're going to give this because some of those guys could be, they, they don't want to carry a gun. No. Uh-uh. You know that if someone could use it against them. Exactly. You know something? Years ago, I remember someone teaching us two things. Thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Where, where did that come from? It reminds me of scripture. Oh, my God. thousand years ago. Yeah. Many people say that those thoughts were written for people many thousands of years ago. They are certainly obsolete and are not relevant for today's modern world. But most nations still believe that those ideas are pertinent and have made stealing a crime. Let me define the word stealing as the taking of property from someone without that person's permission. And America was one of those nations that punishes those who steal without obtaining permission. But Marxist communists do not believe that taking property from someone who owns it without permission is not not stealing, as I will now try to show you. I found a little article that showed up in my local newspaper in 2008. It reported that a 25-year-old man has been sentenced to prison for using the Internet to steal more than $1 million from a list of the Forbes 400 wealthy families, wealthy Americans. The article didn't say it, but he was only doing what Barack Obama is proposing to the American people. The thief was using the Internet to take from the rich and give to the poor, meaning him. He was tried and convicted of stealing. The article said he was based in his in, he was based in his Moscow home, uh, presumably in Russia.
One can only presume that he also believed in the Marxist communist philosophy that when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. That's what Barack Obama said. Well, this guy couldn't know that. He couldn't. (laughs) If I had had been his attorney, excuse me, I would have urged him to take the Obama plea. It was only doing what Barack Obama said I should do. I'm spreading the wealth around, and it's going for everybody, meaning me. That's pretty clever. Equal justice under the law means that all persons guilty of the same crime must be punished equally. So if you punish him, you must also punish Barack Obama as well. Oh, no, no, no. You don't, you don't punish presidents. Heck no. They're above the law. Of course they are. But he is now in prison and Barack Obama was reelected. One of the reasons the government of the United States was created was to protect property from thieves and from invading armies. Do you believe that? Isn't that yeah. a truism? Uh huh. And the reason that was so and the reason that was so was because of the teaching of the Ten Commandments passed down to Moses many centuries before. As I said, two of those commandments are appropriate to the point I'm now trying to make. The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And the Eighth one is, Thou shalt not steal. And that is happening exactly as Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto said it must happen. So what he wrote, the theory of the communists must be summed up by a single sentence, abolishment of private property. Marx wanted the private ownership of housing to cease. And that's what's happening today. Right before our eyes. Yeah, the prices of houses are going sky high. You say, oh, I can sell and make a profit. No, because you have to go out and buy another one that's as expensive as that. Unless, yeah, unless you put the money in the bank and wait, but no, yeah. there's no guarantees. And we see that this is occurring just as the communists wanted in the recession of 2008 to 2013. This was a common sight across America for closed houses where the owner more than likely lost his job and fell behind in the house payments. If Karl Marx was alive in 2017, he would be smiling because one of his goals is being met here in America, just as planned. There was someone else who spoke about property in just a few years later, and that was President Abraham Lincoln. He collected, his collected work showed that uh, these were his words on March 21st, 1864. Property is the fruit of labor. It is a positive good in the world. That some should be rich shows that others may become rich. And here, and hence is justice encouragement to the industry and enterprise. Let him not, let, let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him work diligently and build one for himself.
thus by example assuring that his own shall be safe from violence when built. The Collected Works of Abraham Lincoln, pages 259 through 260. This is obviously the exact opposite of what Karl Marx said, and I would dare to say that Abraham Lincoln was closer to the truth than Karl Marx. Are you listening, Barack Obama? You think he's doing this? Well, even if he is, he doesn't care. <laughs> okay. One more thing that is happening in America would also cause Karl Marx to smile if he were alive today, and that is this. Quote, and that is this, quote, recession, end quote. We are in because it was planned as well. I would like now to discuss a copy of a cartoon that appeared in the Chicago Tribune newspaper on August 21st, 1934. This was right in the middle of the Great Depression of 1929 caused by the Federal Reserve. If that startled you, that I claim that the Great Depression of 1929 was caused by the Federal Reserve, may I suggest to you consider watching my two-hour DVD entitled Abolish the Federal Reserve for the details on how they accomplished that. I would like to point out two parts of the cartoon to you. The first is a figure in the lower left-hand side of the cartoon. It appears as if the cartoonist was drawing a cartoon figure of Leon Trotsky. Interesting. One of the major communists of the, in the Russian Marxist Revolution of 1917 through about 1923, the cartoon figure of Trotsky has just finished uh, lettering on a huge board and the words are describing the communist plan for the United States. It reads, Plan of Action for the U.S. Spend, spend, spend. Under the guise of recovery, bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the Constitution, and declare a dictatorship. Wow. Hmm. That, that, that can't happen in America. I would think it is fair to say that, with the exception of the dictatorship, this recession of 2008 was performing exactly as the communist Trotsky is describing as a plan for the Marxist communists in America. I think this is going very well. It is, yes. The cartoonist has added up, up excuse me, the cartoonist has added this comment to the upper left of the big board. He says it, meaning the plan worked in Russia. Uh, there is a second figure in the cartoon, and it is of Joseph Stalin, the brutal communist dictator of Russia. Notice that he is saying how how red, meaning a communist, the sunrise is getting. How red the sunrise is getting. Yeah. In other words, Stalin was saying how red America is becoming, 
as they follow the plan of Leon Trotsky as a Marxist communist. Let me repeat what Trotsky wrote in the plan of action for the United States. Spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery, bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the constitution and declare a dictatorship. Wow. Kind of like current. That's exactly what Jackson, that's what Biden's doing. Yeah. And the plan of action is happening exactly as Marxist communist Trotsky was predicting. By the way, the crash of 1929 was the second of two modern depressions that have occurred after the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. There was also a depression of 1920. When I was in college studying business, we discussed the crash of 1929 in detail, but we never discussed the depression of 1920. And there is a major reason why we did not. This is very revealing. This is how to have, how to handle a depression. Mm -hmm. The fall of 2009 edition of the Intercollegiate Review, described as a journal of scholarship and opinion, and it published an article that discussed the depression of 1920. The article was entitled "Warren Harding, the President of the United States, Elected in 1920." Yeah, I didn't put the words down there for the... Uh, oh, the book? Well, you yeah. find the book right here to show you that it did exist. Intercollegiate Review, okay. And wow. uh, I think I got it. I can find the uh, article. There it is. Warren Harding and the Forgotten Depression of 1920. Huh. I never even knew there was one in 1920, Ralph. Say it again? I never knew there was a depression in 1920. Well, I just pointed out, we studied the 29, but we knew all about it. They always talked about the people selling stocks mm -hmm. during the crash. Who was buying? The elite. Who was buying? The rich. Somebody had cash to buy. Mm -hmm. You go up like this, you, you get... You sell out. You then go along with the. Uh, no, you you wait until here it gets up to here. Then once it gets to the top, it starts to go over. You sell and then take your profit. Then take it down here and then this way and it goes like this. Buy low, sell high. Yeah, yeah thank you. If I was going to write a book on how to make a killing in the stock market, one page: buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. Right. Uh, in the Forgotten Depression of 1920, I would like to quote four short paragraphs taken from that article. The economic situation of 1920 was grim, but that year unemployment had jumped from 4% to nearly 12%. Oh, my God. In less than a year. Wow. And the gross national product declined by 17%. In his 1920 uh, speech accepting a Republican presidential nomination, Harding declared that we will strike at government borrowing which enlarges the evil. Wow. And we will attack the high cost of government. With every 
energy as we prom uh, promised that relief which we will, will attend the halting of waste and extravagance because it will be an example to stimulate th thrift and economy in private life. It's that simple. You just do it. Yeah. Instead of a fiscal stimulus, meaning the borrowing of money from the Federal Reserve as a way of trying to stimulate the economy with the creation of jobs, Harding cut the government's budget nearly in half between 1920 and 1922. Wow. Yeah. We're not finished. Kill the beast. Tax rates were slashed for all income groups, meaning that it it opened up spending by those who earned their income. The national debt was reduced by one-third. Wow. By the late summer of 1921, only a few months after Harding was inaugurated, signs of recovery were already visible. The following year, meaning 1921, unemployment was back down to 6.7% and... Wow, this is amazing. It was only 2.4% by 1923. Now you know why the Depression of 1920 has been forgotten. Harding did exactly the opposite of what Barack Obama has done for nearly four years. Do you understand? This, the guy saw the problem. 12% unemployment in less than a year was 2.4%. Right. You can, you can kill a depression. Mm-hmm. Now ask yourself, how come President Obama was not following the successful example of President Warren Harding? Harding solved a major depression in less than a year. Amazing. <clears throat> and Obama has not had any effect on the recession of 2008. And this has been the result of foreclosures and loss of jobs in America, and America suffered. I would like now to show you just how much America has suffered under the four years of administration of Barack Obama. I will present these figures one at a time to hopefully increase the impact of understanding just how destructive the practices of Obama's government have been. In 2008, the last budget prepared by George W. Bush, the annual government budget was $3 trillion. I have rounded these figures to make it a little easier to remember. And in two th 2009, the first budget prepared by the Obama administration government spending increased 12% to approximately $3 trillion, $500 billion. And in 2010, Obama spent approximately the same amount as in 2009. And in 2011, the spending increased to three trillion six hundred billion, but in 2012, the spending took another increase to 13 percent over the spending in 2008, to a grand total of three trillion eight hundred million dollars. Source the US government spending dot 
or usgovernmentspending.com. Yeah, we stood by. It's, it's, it has to happen, I guess. Spend, spend people into prosperity. <laughs> yes. Um, now, the following figures are one shown the, the change in each of the figures from Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009 to his inauguration in 2013. The number of unemployed Americans rose by 1.1 million from 12 million to 13.1 million. The unemployment rate rose 9% from 7.8% to 8.5%. The price of gasoline increased 83% from $1.85 to $3.39. The federal debt per person rose by around $14,000 from $35,000 to $49,000. My goodness. Slowly read this, David. Uh Uh-huh meaning that each of us owes the federal government around $49,000 to pay our share of the national debt. I don't have that kind of money, Ralph. <laughs> You'll find it somehow. They, they used to have what they call debtor's prisons. I'm sure that's what we use. Yeah. College tuition rose around 25%. From $6,500 to $8,200, making it that much harder to obtain a college degree. Americans in poverty rose by around $6 million, from $40 million to $46 million. Wow. And home values dropped by around 13%. But the American people re-elected Barack Obama in 2012. Yes, I think it's fair to say that. Things did not get better since Barack Obama became president. Now let me address how Barack Obama's stimulus program has not worked. And the reason is simple. I... It was not intended to work. It was intended to increase the national debt. And and now let me introduce the evidence that Barack Obama has been intentionally increasing the national debt. He is misleading the American people into a belief that his spending is due to the actions of George W. Bush, his predecessor, and the figures show that he is lying to the American people because Barack Obama knew exactly what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And the American people stood idly by while he bankrupted this nation. And Barack Obama uh, kept convincing us that his spending was perfectly normal. And the American people stood idly by as he bankrupted the nation. Isn't that the truth? This was his strategy. He kept telling us prosperity was just around the corner and we patiently waited for it to happen. And the reason is because the American people have a short-term memory. Isn't that the truth? That's it. 
I'm sorry. I, did you get the M1? The yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, it rang four times. I met the I was talking about how do I get rid of that? And then it said me we got started. We couldn't get open, so I forgot to tell it. That's okay. Bother. Yeah. And the reason for this has been stated with a basic definition of the two words, recession and depression. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. Uh, <laughs> it's probably true. Yeah. As long as it doesn't happen to me. Right. So as long as it hasn't affected all Americans equally, such as the depression of 1929, most of us are content to be patient. And Barack Obama was banking on this patience because he did not want to end the recession. Boy, what a dirty dog. This, this is mild just to, from what we're going to get into in a minute. Well, sometime. Okay. I would presume that he, uh, by his willing support of the economic and political system known as communism, Barack Obama has not yet learned that it is very the very wealthy who are behind the Communist Party, not the working class, as we have been told. I agree. I would like to encourage him to read Chapter 9 entitled Communism in my book entitled The Unseen Hand. Uh, what, you got that book handy there, Ralph? Do you want to show everybody? Yeah, I think so. There it is. An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History by A. Ralph Epperson. The Unseen Hand. Good book. Very good book. Okay, now, if you want to read that last part. Okay, the Unseen Hand. Okay, uh, hold up, because it is here that I, ampl that I amply support that conclusion. Let me just provide you with a couple of quotations from the chapter as an inducement to him and anyone else interested in the subject from page 93 of my book. In June of 1864, Marx wrote to Lyon Phillips, his uncle. I made 400 pounds on the stock market. Footnote number 14, page 93. Oops, Marx just, Marx just admitted that he wanted to be just like the moneyed class, those he hated so much, those making money in a stock market. How hypocritical these people are. Yeah. I agree. Marx, by the way, had a maid all the time he was alive. A maid. Yeah. And by the way, she got pregnant. I don't know. I'm I can't imagine why. I'm not going to ask you how that happened because that, that has to do with biology. <laughs> uh, and this one also from page 93. Marx wrote to Frederick Engels, his fellow communist, the son of a very wealthy cotton mill owner in England and, uh, and the so-called author of the Communist Manifesto. asking him for the final settlement on the, on the, of the Wolf age legacy. The Wolf legacy was an amount of money left for Marx by Wilhelm Wolf, a supporter of Marx's communist philosophy, 
but apparently given to Engels to give to Marx. Ooh, that could cause bad blood. <laughs> that amount of money was 824 pounds when the annual income of the exploited working class is approximately 4.5 pounds. 824 pounds is around 180 times the average working wage of four and one half pounds. Wow, 180 times. If the average working man's annual wage is uh, the capitalist economy of the capitalist economy is 400 or it's 40,000, then if you multiply 40,000 by 180, Marx was given the equivalent of approximately 7.2 million dollars in current American money. Wow. No wonder he wanted the money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with that amount of money, Marx could join the, the money class. But of course, Marx gave that money to the poor working class, didn't he? No, I don't think he did. Oh, no, come on now. Don't do that to Marx. He's not <laughs> here to defend himself. As and excuse me, as I said, it's a pity that Barack Obama had not read the Unseen Hand, because if he did, he would have learned that communism is a tool of the very wealthy. Do you think he really would care? Well, he should, he noticed what he did. He bought a house with thirty-nine million dollars yeah. down on some beach property. He's yeah. really concerned about the water rising too. You know, or immigrants going to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> um, this is why they fund communism revolutions all over the world and have for centuries. But alas, Barack hasn't read the unseen hand, so he does not know that his admiration of Marx is unfounded because... Marx was a hypocrite of the worst order, a total fraud. Now, let me begin the process of providing you with uh, one evidence that Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. I'll do this first. This is the other. Well, I did say here. I'm sorry. Well, anyway, let's just take a look at the. Uh... And then I'll just read through. Yeah. So oh, here it is. Barack Obama, dreams from my father. Okay. This is what, maybe 400, 200 pages. I read it in 2012. I heard that it makes excellent toilet paper. What's that? I heard that it makes excellent toilet paper. Yes. Okay, start over again. Okay. In this book that he wrote entitled Dreams of My Father, published in 1995 and updated in 2004, and a good place to start would be on page Roman numeral 7, where Obama praises his mother. And this is what he says about her. My mother helped my sister and me, and that is the that is what is best in me. I owe to her, 
And this is what he tells us about her views about the world. Here we go. We're down on the downhill slope. She was a lonely witness for secular humanism. I would like to take a few moments for those who do not are not familiar with secular humanism. This a religious view of man without a god. Uh, and they have published three manifestos meaning their position papers. The first was in 1933, the second was in 1973, the third was in 2003. Barack's mother passed away in 1995, so she could not have known about the Humanist Manifesto number three. So I will concentrate on the first two as a way of showing you just what she believed in. Now let's go and just summarize what I just said. According to Brock, she was very influential in him growing up with right. what she believed in. And she's exposing him to what she believes in. We're now going to find out what she believes in. Okay. This is a booklet containing copies of both Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2, and I shall only discuss the positions that are pertinent to our discussion of possibly how Barack Obama first learned about communism. And if you'd hold that book up, that'd be incredible. I'd like to see it. Once again, my green cover. Yeah. Humanist Manifesto. Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2. Okay. And... Uh... There's a, there's a religion, uh, a church down the street that believes in this. Uh, uh, they, Is it Unitarian? That's it. I think yeah. that's it. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's, let's examine briefly a little bit about what they believe. <clears throat> this is position number 14 of the first manifesto. The humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivating society has shown itself to be inadequate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here is here, Miss Obama, Mrs. Obama says that the free enterprise capitalist economy is inadequate. So this is this was where Barack learned that capitalism doesn't work. Hey, mommy, I didn't know that. I wonder why. <laughs> Continue reading number 14. And that was a radical change in method, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established that uh, must establish the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. And if you read that correctly, it could have been written by Karl Marx himself, a communist and a humanist. So in other words, the free enterprise system does work. We need a shared responsibility, which means we'll take, well, I'll, I'll show you. We're not, not finished yet. Mm -hmm. Because what that she just said is going to make sense in a minute. 
Now let me repeat what Barack Obama told Joe the Plumber during the presidential campaign of 2008. I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. Boy, that's kind of a word-for-word -word quote. Karl Marx told us how he was going to spread the wealth of wealth around as a communist, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. I'm trying to remember that phrase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In America, it's called welfare. Right. So Barack Obama's mother was a Marxist communist, although she reportedly declared herself to be a secular humanist. Remember what Barack said about his mother, that what is best in me, I owe to her. You forget that she was apparently very influential. I would gather also very articulate, if I may, awful God. Mm -hmm. In case Barack's mother read Humanist Manifesto number two in the positions of the secular humanist, I would like to quote from position number 15, because this one increases the size and the scope of sharing the wealth to an international scope. I'd say we're about halfway through. Wow. Um, extreme disproportions in wealth and income should be reduced on a worldwide basis. This would include Karl Marx's dictum to for each nation according to its ability, to each nation according to its needs. Suddenly, Barack's views about sharing the wealth are revealed in the views of his mother. But these thoughts were uh, for a very young Barack Obama. Yeah, it's also called foreign aid. Mm -hmm. Just give it away. Yeah, like, we, don't, we don't care how you spend it. Just spend it. And then ask for some more. Yeah, like sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. Yeah. In his book, he shared the names of others who shared their communist views with him. I want to explain that I shall be quoting several books that refer to black people as Negroes. These books were written in a time when this when this was the name to call black people. Well, no, you're brilliant and you're saying, no, we're reading books that were written and they used it because it was common. Right. Yeah, you're, you're not bigoted. It's the, the writers of the book that wrote that way. Yeah. I shall quote them with the language used when the book was written. During high school, Barack said on page 85, he gathered up books from the library, and some of those books he read were written by W.E.B. Du Bois. Hold up the picture, please. So that's W.E.B. Du Bois. Okay. As I remember, I believe he's buried in uh, Moscow. Really? Some building. I, that's a big... I seem to remember him being the one that that happened to. Mm -hmm. It could be someone else, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Right. In 1961, the Communist Party announced the letter that, that Mr. had written to them that said in part during the 20, 1920s and 1930s I began to study Karl Marx and the communist communism is the only way to human life Whew. the 
somebody was delusional. Slow, David. In the end, communism will triumph. I want to help bring that day. There it is. The path of the American Communist Party is clear. And then he listed 10 platform positions, only one of which I shall mention here. It was the third one, and it read, The limitations of personal income, once again, how does that compare with, I think when you spread the wealth around, it is good for everybody. Wow. In other words, that's what mommy taught me. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's called that charity, Red Cross and you know, right. Goodwill. And... Another writer that Barack read was Langston Hughes. A poet, a writer of plays, novels, and motion picture and television scripts. Have you got a picture to show us? Yes. Langston Hughes, okay. Friendly guy, looks like. Yeah. Wouldn't hurt anybody. Okay, now we can start reading from hold up. Okay. One of his most celebrated poems was Goodbye Christ and it contained these lines. Mamma mia. Make way for a new guy. A real guy named Marx Communist. And in his poem entitled Ballad of Lenin, meaning Vladimir Lenin, the brutal communist dictator of Russia, Hughes wrote, Move over, comrade Lenin, and give me room. I fought with you, comrade Lenin. I live for you, comrade Lenin. The world is our room. Wow. These are the people that he's reading. Rock. I could find no example of Mr. Hughes ever admitting to membership in the Communist Party of the United States. But two former Communist Party officials, uh, Louis uh, Budins and Manning Johnson, testified under oath that they knew Hughes was a member of the Communist Party. Yes, Barack Obama was learning his lessons well from these communists. And is there a picture that goes with that? Oh, I'm sure he has a picture of Manning Johnson. Yeah. Oh, okay. Looked like a nice man, didn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he waited to see what he does. Oh, no. And how important he was. It's very, really. Okay, here we go. Now we can take over after whole lot. Okay. Manning Johnson was a member of the National Committee of the Communist Party, the highest governing body of the Communist Party, and he also wrote a book entitled Color, Communism, and Common Sense in 1958. 
you have that book, Ralph. I must have had a bunch of green, green folders 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> and that's the way I protect my books. Okay, American Opinion, Color, Communism, and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. Okay, reprint series, one dollar. Wow. I know that went through too easily. Okay, now let's let's get into this. Let's okay. see if Barack Obama read Manning Johnson. So I decided to see if Barack Obama read this book, and I could find no reference to him having even heard of this book. So I decided to locate my copy to see if there were some clues as to why Barack couldn't find time to read it. Well, he might have, but he didn't like what he said. Huh. These are some of the comments that Johnson made in his book. Quote, ten years, ten years I labored in the cause of communism. Ten years later... Though thoroughly disillusioned, I abandoned communism. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. It's finished. Just hold on. We're going to talk more about Johnson. Okay. Anyone else? I saw communism in all its naked cruelty, ruthlessness, and other contempt of Christian attributes and passions. And two, I saw total low value placed upon human life the total lack of respect for the dignity of man now things are starting to make sense when you look okay. at Pol Pot and, and uh, you know and all the other mass murdering communists yes. well once again once you decide there's no God you're free to do what you want to do yeah that's right and there's no restraint Mr. Johnson did not explain but he is quite likely it is quite lucky that he was writing about the murder of at least 40 million innocent Russians and by the communists Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin. How many? 40 million. Wow. 40 Those million. Dead people. Yeah. In a little three year revolution. In the communist revolutions in Russia in 1917 and the murder of as many as 60 million by the communist Chow Enlai, Mao Zedong, in the brutal communist revolutions in China after 1949. That's 100,000 just between all those. Um, any casual observer would have to agree that Mr. Johnson, when he stated that he had to withdraw from the communists because of their, quote, naked cruelty, end quote, he was telling the truth. These revolutions by themselves should have caused communists like Webb Dubois and Langston Hughes to abandon communism just as Mr. Johnson did. But there is no evidence that either of them left. <laughs> I just forget that. Yeah. It's not important. It would be fair to say that both of these communists just ignored the evidence that surely they must have known about. All we know is that neither of these men abandoned communism like Mr. Johnson did.
Yet, these were the communists that Barack Obama studied. Not Manning Johnson. Not Mr. John now, Mr. Johnson was not just a party member. He was a leader. He reported that he had climbed rapidly to the National Committee, the highest governing body of the Communist Party in America. The head cheese, the big honcho. I do not believe that either W.E.B. Dubois or Langston Hughes had attained any position of leadership in the Communist Party. So if Barack Obama had wanted to read, read a book by a leader in the Communist Party, he should have read Mr. Johnson's book. That's it? Yeah. I talk, talk to the top man. Mm-hmm. Hey, right. Excuse me, when did you write that book? I, should I read it? Yes, you should read it. Yeah. But to be, no, excuse me, but to be specific, Mr. Johnson said that the communists showed their low value placed on human life in America. This is what he wrote, page 18 in a chapter entitled Red, meaning communist, plot to use Negroes. Black rebellion was, uh, was what Moscow, meaning Russia, wanted. Bloody racial conflict would split America. What if one or five million Negroes die in an abortive attempt to establish a Negro, Negro Republic? Hold on. I don't think there's seven people in America to do this. Unfortunately, Mr. Johnson did not explain what he meant by that, but I have found the explanations of what, he, what the communists wanted to happen in America. This is a copy of the small booklet entitled American Negro Problems, issued in 1928 by the Workers, Li- the Workers Library Publishers, apparently a subsidiary of the Communist Party. What's that book look like, Ralph? Just got a little bit. That's no <laughs> <laughs> problem. Okay, American Negro Problems. Okay. And you don't have to read that, but I just want you to see it. Right. This is official. This was an offset. You know, someone made a copy of it. Uh, uh-huh. And I put it, I bought it for my own records. Wow. And, okay. Did we finish that quote? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I was at the end. Okay, thank you. Right. Uh, it claims that the Negroes have a right to a national self-determination, which means the right to establish their own state and to erect their own government. They called this new nation the Negro Soviet Republic, meaning it was supposed to be based upon the communist Soviet government in Russia. This book was followed by this one, this booklet was followed by this one, also issued in 1925 by the same workers, library publishers. It is entitled "The Negroes in a Soviet in so a Soviet America." Uh, what does that one look like, Ralph? Okay. 
I can't really see this, so I'll just do the best yeah, I can. Yeah, it's got a picture of a gentleman smiling. And is there a capture on top? No. No, I don't see anything. There's a box there, but. Oh, there, oh, it, there is. it is. The Negroes in the Soviet America. Okay. It's not very big. Big enough. Yeah. Well, you've got a library that's to be admired. <laughs> well, you know, please understand, I've been doing this since uh, 1963. Right. And I, I, I bought these books. I wanted to read them. I wanted to know what they, what they said. Exactly. And we're going to talk about things that we didn't know. We never knew what oh. they were going to do to this country. Why didn't you hear this? Uh, it is entitled The Negroes in a Soviet America. Um, this book states that W.E. Dubois was the clearest and foremost exponent of black patriotism and race solidarity, page 14. If this was the reason Barack Obama read the works of Dubois, he surely must have discovered that Mr. Dubois was talking about a Negro Soviet Republic. The book continued. The communists fight for the right of the Black Belt territory, meaning the South, to self-determination, page 30, and that they would fight to win the laboring people of the Black Belt forever, completely independent from the capitalist-ruled Republic of the North, page 31. And it got more specific in just where this Black Republic would be created. It would be certainly to include Richmond and Norfolk, Virginia, Columbia, and Charleston, South Carolina. The booklet went on to explain that the term Soviet Negro Republic does not mean a government composed exclusively of Negroes. Whites as well as Negroes will participate in the new power. But the communists proclaimed that the revolution would not stop with the seizure of the land. In fact, the land, once seized, would now be the property of the people as a whole. So how's that going to work? Not very well. <laughs> I don't understand that. Everybody owns this property, so they can come in your house and say, I want this as part of my, all my property. What is that? What? Yeah, they exactly. want to abolish private property. You can't have a house. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let me ask the question, what if the whites and the blacks who own property in this new republic didn't want to have their, their land seized? I think that Manning Johnson answered this question uh, with uh, the repeat of what he said. What if one of five million Negroes, um, and I might add whites as well, die in the abortive attempt to establish the Negro Republic? I think I will send Barack Obama a copy of Colored Communism and, the com- and Common Sense. I didn't know how to find him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, he's not like a Joe Biden. You go to Delaware and people will tell you where he is because he's there 90% of the time. You just got to find where the nearest Coke snorting party is going to be. 
Okay, you what? The nearest coke snorting party. <laughs> I am reasonably certain that he was he has not read it because he did not list Mr. Manning as being one of the black authors he read. But I am certain that if he has not read the book, he should read it and renounce communism just like Mr. Johnson did. Apparently, he didn't want to know that Mr. Johnson saw communism for what it was. Communism is all of its naked cruelty, ruthlessness, and utter contempt, and their low value placed upon human life. Now, let me return to the comments Barack Obama made in his book entitled Dreams from My Father. Later, there's more. I'm sorry, really. uh, later, when Barack Obama enrolled in Occidental College in 1979, he told us in his book that. I chose my friends carefully, and then he listed several groups, including the Marxist professors. Read that again. I chose my friends carefully, and then he listed several groups, including the Marxist professors. He went to college to learn Marxism? That's what it seems like. Occidental? I don't know what kind of, I don't know anything about that school. No, me either. I'm a Jesuit or who, who knows? But he went there. He knew where to go. Yeah. Yes, Barack Obama wanted to continue his studies of the communist ideology by learning from the Marxist professors. I am making these comments public now in 2022, now that Barack Obama is no longer president, but he's still in America's life. Unfortunately. That was my adding that. Oh, okay. Yeah. But now, in 2022, I still believe that we need to be wary of Barack Obama as long as he is in the public eye. Mr. Obama only spent two years at Occidental, and then he transferred to Columbia University to finish his four-year college, uh, four college uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Now, the question remains, did he seek out the Marxist professors? on the campus of Columbia as he did in Occidental. And I will provide you with some of the evidence that he did. This is a book entitled Barack Obama, The Unauthorized Biography by Webster Griffin Tarpley. You have that book, Ralph? Unauthorized biography, huh? GOP, damn America. Okay. It's, it's, uh, you can see it's a, a lot bigger than a, it's about the size yeah. of a hardbound, but it's a paperback. Wow, that's a big book. Yeah, it is. That's probably a good read. Okay, I, we didn't read the bottom part. Okay. okay. He made his observation on page 52 of his book. I am getting quite an education here, Mr. Epperson. Are you learning something? Yes, a lot. Why are you doing that? Because I have a thirsting need to know. 
Well, I'll be happy to do what I can to assist you. Thank you. And I appreciate um, In a speech delivered in Iowa during his presidential campaign of 2008, Mr. Obama told the audience this, Zbigniew Brzezinski is someone I have learned an immense amount from. Hold up the picture. Please read that again. Okay, Mr. Obama told an audience this, Zbigniew, okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, Zbigniew Brzezinski is someone I have learned an immense amount from. Hold up the picture, please. Where can we see what, what Brzezinski believes? Yeah, that's him. Snake Eyes himself. President Jimmy Carter's national... What was he? National what? Sure, sure, uh, national Affairs. I'm sorry, I forgot to put the bottom line. On okay. it. National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor, okay. Now, I, I went to uh, Tucson High School and graduated uh, magna cum dummy. So I got I got high high high, high acclaim. And so I went to college at U of A. And guess who was there going to college with Dennis Dickensini? Oh, he's wow. a, he was the father he just he later became a, 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 a senator from yeah. Arizona. And so he got he got to, to be the uh, uh, senator. Uh, so why did I bring him up? Oh, it all occurred to me. I had a point to talk about him, but I don't. I can't put it together there. Okay. He further praised him with these words: "He's one of our most outstanding scholars and thinkers." So he's like, he really liked this guy, Brzezinski. I guess. Brzezinski was Professor Brzezinski of Columbia at Columbia from 1960 to 1989, which means that he was there during Barack Obama's junior and senior years. And while he was there, he was the head of the Institute for Communist Affairs. Oh, no, he was in charge of the, uh, of the Coca-Cola machine. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. No. <laughs> you can't. I'm telling you. <laughs> That's why I hold these books up. Anyone can read them. My goodness. Uh, so we can now determine what it was that Barack Obama learned from Professor Brzezinski. Oh, boy. Oh, not? <laughs> Please remember you're on a jury. Yeah. Not to draw conclusions until the very end. Okay, I promise. Stand and listen. We're going to cover Brzezinski. Uh, this is a book written in 1970 by Professor Brzezinski while he was a professor at Columbia. And we can read quite possibly um, one of those books that his student Barack Obama read. It is entitled Between Two Ages. Now, just to finish, I was behind. I tried to find a book in my library. I, I can't. I, I must have taken it out for some reason. Because I don't give these books away alone. Oh, I don't blame you. No. But but I, I have that book. I read the whole thing and we're gonna we're gonna take from it. Okay. I now quote from the title Thirteen Statements of His that reflect his support of the communist ideology. The viewer may think that this is a bit excessive, but I just want the viewer to see that this professor really believed in Marxist communism and I will be citing in his own words. 
Uh, is your seat well fa- fashioned? Yeah, this is getting juicy. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> this is good stuff, Ralph. <laughs> I am doing this uh, to show you that um, Professor Brzezinski is a self-professed Marxist communist. These are comments made by Professor Brzezinski. I think we read that one already. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to read 13, one after the other. Okay. And the page number cited. I wish I, I don't have my book. I'm, I'm sorry. I couldn't okay. find it. Like you're referencing it anyway. Number one, Marxism represents a further vital and creative stage in the maturing of man's universal vision. Page 72. Number two, Marxism is a victory of reason over belief. Page 72. Number three, Marxism puts a premium on guides to to action derived from an examination of its beliefs. Page 72. Now, there's number four there, Ralph. Okay. I got to read the next one on that page. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Forgive me. That's okay. No, that's all right. Thank you for Number four. Marxism did expand pop Marxism did expand popular self-awareness by awakening the masses to social inequity by creating social inequity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and by providing them with a historical justification for insisting upon it. Number 5, Marxism represents the most advanced method of extrapolating from its cer- certain principles concerning social behavior, page 72. Number six, Marxism has served as a mechanism of human progress, even if its practice has often fallen short of its ideals. There's a little bit of truth. Please read this one again. You're short, David, if you don't mind. Marxism has served as a mechanism of human progress, even if its practice has often fallen short of its ideals. In other words, it's not perfect. But that's a, we'll just disregard the part that's not perfect. It's hypocritical. <laughs> Once again, for the record, the Marxist-Russian Communism Revolution of 1917 to 1923 murdered as many as 40 million Russians. That's the little things that insignificant. Yeah, it's a itsy-bitsy bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the Chinese Marxist Communist Revolution of 1927 to about 1949 murdered more than 60 million Chinese. I wonder if these examples of communism's practice are ones that he claims have fallen short of its ideals. Well, this kind of short, just a little. Even if it's the queen mother of all faults. (laughs) It's like spilling. You drink you when you're, you know, drinking. It's nothing of any consequence. Yeah, pouring whiskey on a fire. Maybe he somehow forgot to explain just how his practices had fallen short of its ideals. Perhaps the reason that communism's practice has fallen short of its ideals is because of one man. Oh, boy. You, you remember this one. We're going to bring him up again. But we did this one or the other, the last one. But it's appropriate to do it today as well. Sergey Nekayev, hold up picture, please. I remember this guy. 
Yeah. Yep. Sergei Nekiev, the revolutionary catechism. I believe he, someplace I, maybe one of the days before, he died at 38 years of age. In other words, he gave, he gave, did the things that the communists should do, smoke and drink and crowds and party uh, and again, and then died at 38. Lasciviousness living. Okay, let's see. According to Robert Payne in his book entitled The Life and Death of Lenin, this pamphlet was read by Vladimir Lenin and has profoundly, in, profoundly influenced him. Well, what a thing to carry on your conscience. Can I get What a thing to carry on your conscience that you, you, you uh, influenced the man that killed 40 million people. Yeah. Payne said, it's... It's all its essentials. It would remain the guiding principle of Lenin's political, meaning communist, activity. So, in other words, the foundation. Yeah, why don't you read what this man said? I'm going to do it again. We did this once before, but mm-hmm. if those people were there, even if they were, read this. This is what a revolutionary does. So the student of communism must read Nikichev to understand why communism was so brutal in the Russian Communist Revolution of 1917. The following are taken from this catechism. The revolutionary, it's, the revolutionary is a doomed man. Wow. <laughs> Here's something that makes you want to take the job. Okay. Everything in him is wholly absorbed in the single thought and the single passion for revolution. He has broken all the bonds which tie him to the social order and to the civilized world. There's a reflection about that when he just said, these people that get a, get a pistol and go in and rob a, a 7-Eleven or one of those stores, mm-hmm. don't... They haven't taken out. What happens if the guy's got a gun? Right. Or he's going to hit me and not kill me with a hammer. Uh-huh. They don't think that far ahead. I've got the gun. Therefore, right. I'm in No, you're not in charge. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, that must be what, what Sergei did with his life. I right. just spoke out curved. I'll be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What he meant was that he was no longer bound by the Christian morality, meaning he was free to do whatever he needed for the cause of the communist revolution. And now he went on. The revolutionary must be tyrannical towards others. For him, morality is everything which contributes to the triumph of the revolution. Night and day, he must have but one thought, merciless destruction. Oh, my God. What do these people do when they burn a building down, break the windows and break the things inside steel? Merciless destruction. Exactly. Looks like somebody's been teaching our young people, some of our young people, probably at college. uh, Yeah. Sergei Nitsayev. The anarchist, yeah. He must be prepared to destroy himself and to destroy with his own hands everything that stands in the path of the revolution. He should not hesitate to destroy any position, any place, or any man. This is why the 
Superman revolutionary walks up to a police car and smashes the window and then shoots the policeman sitting there. Right. Man, oh man. He must hate everyone and everything in it with an equal hatred. This filthy social order can be split into several categories. The first category comprises those who must be condemned to death without delay. So imagine putting this in writing. Well, this is not, let me let me add something here because we have elected officials that are talking about killing Trump and not not even thinking twice about saying it. Well, that's what what uh, Biden did. Uh, was it was he? No, some senator said we got to shoot them all. Yeah. That comment should have gotten him in jail. Exactly. It's assault. Um, with the order, when the order of execution is prepared, no private sense of outrage should be considered, and the orders of execution must be written for forty million Russians. Wow. And their only crime was living in a capitalist society and not wanting to live in a communist one. Now, nowhere in Zbigniew Brzezinski's book can I find mention of the name Sergei Nekachev. So one can, consider, uh, can certainly understand why Professor Brzezinski did not feel any sense of moral outrage when this example of communism practice fell short of its ideals. And that's why Professor Brzezinski so admired the communist philosophy. Yeah, he just, he, I don't know that he knew Sergei Nechev, but, but he knew, he had to know about the 40 million people. Oh yeah, of course. Because he studied it. And he was from Poland, a neighboring country to Russia. Uh, now, let me return to the thoughts of Brzezinski. Number seven, it has been Marxism that has served to stir the mind and mobilize human energies purposefully, page 73. Number eight, the major contributions of Marxism is its broadening influence, which opened man's mind to previously ignored perspectives, page 74. Number nine, Marxism represents an important and progressive stage, page 74. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, for the first time as I'm doing this, I don't remember, I did this in 2017. In fact, actually in 2013. Right. I don't, everything seems like it's on page 74, and that's not true. Huh. So I must have been, got sidetracked or something. I don't know. Number 10, Marxism represented a major advance in man's ability to conceptualize his relationship to the world. Page 83. Number 11, Marxism provided a unique intellectual tool for harnessing the fundamental forces of our time. Page 123. Number 12, Marxism supplied the best available insight into contemporary reality. Page 123. And finally, number 13, Marxism's theory um, is the standard bearer of this century's most influential system of thought. I remember when I, I, 
not Dennis, you can see me. Uh, he was a classmate of ours, although I don't really, I don't even know if I knew him uh, in high school. And then in college, we were both there. He was going to uh, law school. I probably never met him, but but uh, we we um, he had a um, he had a um, I, he decided as a senator to be a. I want to know what you people really think. So he started having uh, open houses. Uh, public invited at so and so location, seven fifty in there. So Dennis is there, and he's in the corner of a. Uh, it was a UMA auditorium, a second one, not the big one, but the second one. Mm-hmm. And he was down in the corner with the microphone. I'm up in the, the, the seats were theater style like this, and right. I'm sitting over here. So I stood up and got the mic to me. You know, I said, Dennis, you don't remember me, but I'm Ralph Everson. Oh, yeah, Ralph. He didn't remember me. And after, I'll tell you what happened. I said, Dennis, I'm very concerned about Zbigniew Brzezinski. Yeah. I said, uh, he happens to be a Marxist communist. Well, I, I said, how could Jimmy Carter name him as a Democrat? You're a Democrat, Dennis. How can he named Zabrzynski, a communist, the National Security Advisor. Well, he said our party's big enough to allow all sorts of ideas. Huh. Well, you want communists in there. <laughs> uh, there were, I have three other stories that I love to tell at reunions about Dennis. All right. Uh, and, and I won't bore you because it's only, I want to make one last comment. The last time I saw him at a reunion, he was already there. It was Friday night, and I was working on the staff, so I didn't get to be the first guy there, the tenth guy. I showed up late, and everybody's talking and drinking. He's over like this in the corner with his wife, and I walked in. He saw me. He grabbed his wife and left. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to. Jeez, Ralph. I don't want to talk to Ralph. Uh, party pooper. I, I said, hey, I'm sorry, Dennis. I didn't mean to ruin the party for you. But it's what you thought. He's the last guy that voted to give China the Suez the Panama Canal. Yeah. Panama Canal. Wow. Okay. And uh, as a social model for resolving the key dilemmas forcing modern man. Yes, indeed, Professor Brzezinski is a self-professed Marxist communist. I think we have to agree. I, I think you've provided enough evidence to show that. <laughs> 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 and he apparently did serve as a real teacher of Marxism to young Barack as he had continued to choose his friends wisely and continued to seek out the Marxist professors. Wow. We're here, I'm sorry. We already joked about this. Oops. Uh, did I fail to mention that Zbigniew Brzezinski was President Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor because he was. Apparently, Jimmy didn't read Brzezinski's book entitled Between Two Ages. <laughs> I don't remember Jimmy Carter. Uh, uh, I try not to. Yeah. No. He, uh, Brzezinski, decided that we needed a southern governor to be president. Mm-hmm. So he went to David Rockefeller, so I'll find him for you. 
he walked into a peanut farm and said, Jimmy, how would you like to be president? Uh -huh. He was the worst pr president, except for Barack Obama, who was a lot Biden. Yeah. And Red Biden, forgive me. Yeah. Uh, in between that, we got this guy. Uh -huh. <laughs> You're getting progressively worse. <laughs> I know this is but a brief review of Barack Obama's history, but I think we can also say, yes, indeed, Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. He's told us in his own words. Well, Amen. We're going to probably finish. We started a little after three, maybe uh -huh. 15, 20 minutes. So we'll see if we can. I'm sure be able to do it. Uh, okay. We're going pretty quickly through this. Now, I'd like to discuss exactly what kind of communist Barack Obama is. By using this cartoon that I discussed previously, you will notice that Leon Trotsky is saying that his plan for the United States worked in Russia. That statement is not altogether true because the communists used both this step-by-step -step process advocated by Trotsky and the violent approach favored by Lenin. The Communist Party in Russia prior to the revolution had a sharp division in it. We've got maybe 30 of these to finish. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the majority called the Bolsheviks were led by Vladimir Lenin, and he favored the violent revolutionary way to, com to communize Russia. Com yeah, communize Russia. Uh, the, major the minority called the Mensheviks were led by Leon Trotsky. His approach was the nonviolent approach, a gradual step-by-step -step process to lead Russia to communism. Well, that sounds familiar. Uh, but Lenin's Bolshevik branch prevailed, and he led Russia into the communist state by the use of violence. And it was um, the pamphlet of Sergei Nikachev that opened the eyes to the benefits of the use of violence. Lenin exiled Trotsky from Russia, and Trotsky went to Mexico. <laughs> he had a little accident. Yeah, with an axe. Yeah. <laughs> But strangely, an axe fell on his head. His days as a communist came to an end. It appears so far that Obama is a Menshevik communist, favoring the step-by-step -step gradual takeover of America. Does that mean that Nikita Khrushchev was one of those two? Well, I, don't, I, I guess so. I don't think there were any wars connected with him. I don't think... No, Khrushchev was a Georgian... Um, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics had 10 or 12, 15 little groups all Republics. joined together yeah. in the Union of the USSR. And I think he was from Georgia, and he was one of the ones who led the Georgians to starvation. Oh, okay. He ten, six or five, five million or three million, and that got him. But he, I don't he, know how he, he got there. He was known to have said uh, that uh, he... He was. He said that he wasn't going to invade the United States; that they would, he would just destroy us from the inside. 
yeah. that it would be a gradual progression towards destruction and, and into communism. That, that, that's, that was probably Trotsky's idea as well. Right. Okay. And Obama probably as well. Mm-hmm. Unless he read the pamphlet by Sergei Nekhachev, and Obama believes that communism is so desirable that he will res- resort to violence. That's the point we don't know about uh, yeah. Obama. Uh, I don't know of him. Obviously, those things were going on, and he never seemed to object. Right. I don't remember Obama getting together with a rally saying, we got to stop this. Keep burning. Milwaukee, apparently, has never rebuilt that section. They just leveled. Yeah. Uh, the Rose Bowl Parade on January the 1st of 2013 had an interesting float on it, one that is pertinent to this study. The Defense Department entered this float in honor of the veterans of the Korean War between 1950 and 1953. Uh, one of the writers of the float was an 82-year-old Sergeant, James uh, McKeach. McKeach, I don't yeah. have it. That's okay. Uh, in who was a veteran of the war. The photograph accompanying this picture is my local, in my local newspaper said that the sergeant risked his life to quote, stop this aggressive force called communism, end quote. And Barack Obama's champion, Barack Obama champions the spread of communism into the United States. I didn't put it in there because I was afraid people said, well, you did it because he was black. That's the way the reason I did it. Because here's a black man uh, risking his life to stop communism, and then we've got this black man who's working to install it. Right. That's what I wanted to say. And I said, no, they're going to say, oh, you did that because so I just said... Yeah, you're a racist, the whole racist yeah. thing, yeah. Uh, what a revealing contrast between these two men. One risked his life to oppose it. The other is attempting to implement it in the United States. Yeah. That's why I was I was stunned by this man. He was 85 years old, still fit, still wore his uniform, all the badges and the buttons and everything else. He was on the floor. And I saw that. And then it was shown in, in my newspaper, a picture of him on the floor. Nice. And I, I said, here's Obama telling us we got to go communist. And this black man... Uh, it says, no, we don't. Right. I'm stop it in Korea. Okay. By the way, and certainly not essential to our study, a group who also wanted to admire his writings of Karl Marx, and that was the Beatles, who produced a cover of their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band that was released in 1967. You know that record? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I may, well, I'll say, I'll, I'll cover that. There's a point I wanted to bring out. Sure. Apparently, this album was uh, a great hit among those who enjoyed what has been called rock and roll music. The album has been called the most important rock and roll album ever made. There's a reason I, I thought it was interesting. Well, I can argue that, too, against it. Uh, the cover is made up up of co- the College of Individuals apparently collecting together to hear the Lonely Hearts band in front of them. One of the sites of the internet about this album said that the Beatles picked up these people out as a, 
as being. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm done. Out as being. Quote, some of their favorite celebrities, end quote. And I would like to point out one of them because Karl Marx was in the crowd, one of the favorite celebrities of the Beatles. That doesn't surprise me. These young men were respected more even today. Yeah. I don't know if you know that uh, John, John, Lennon? Uh, not Lennon, uh, McCarthy had a big ranch, well, ranch out in the hills. Oh, Paul. Today. Yeah, Paul. Tucson, Paul, yeah. Yeah. Big I, ranch believe, in Tucson? I believe Paul, the real Paul McCarthy died in that car crash. Mm-hmm. You've never got into that, looked at his? I just, a little bit, yeah. A little, that's about all. But I think he died. Now, in conclusion, I would like to bring in an expert on communism to attest to the virtues of the system. Perhaps I have been a little too harsh on the system during this presentation. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a mea culpa. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Well, here's the expert. Here's the guy. Mm-hmm. This expert has lived the joys of the communist system for 53 years, ever since he assumed the presidency of his country in 1959. I knew who you and the expert is Fidel Castro, the president of Cuba, a communist nation. So let's see what Fidel says. He he lived it, baby. Mm-hmm. The Beatles right. didn't live it, but he did. This man's credentials are impeccable. He has seen Cuba as a communist nation ever since 1959. In fact, he was the one that led the revolution to create the communist state. So I would think if he speaks, he should know. So Mm -hmm. I think he should trust him what he thinks about the system. Yeah. Now, let's see if his views about the joys of communism still hold true. An article appeared in my local newspaper on September 9, 2010, and the headline reads, Fidel, economic system no longer works. Huh? That's what he said. Yeah. Fidel said that? Yeah. Well, that's... Well, why would he say that? 53 years he lived it. And why didn't he get rid of it <laughs> if it didn't work? <laughs> well, you know, it worked for him and his brother. Uh-huh. They had everything they could probably live on, and from yachts and airplanes and jets and helicopters. and, and uh, Cuban cigars. Yachts, I'm sure. Yeah. Food, adequate food. Mm-hmm. could have whatever they wanted. Yeah. That's always the case in communism. Yeah, certain, certain classes, and we have to put up with that. Exactly. Uh, the article reported that Castro had told a visiting American journalist that the Cuban model doesn't work for the for us anymore. The article continued: the state controls well over ninety percent of the economy. Wow. What that is? Well, here's the answer. Let's continue the article. Okay. We're studying true communism. Paying Cuban workers salaries of $20 a month returned for free health care and education and nearly free transportation and housing. So out of that $20, they got to pay for transportation and housing, so they get $6 for food. Right. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's where they're starting. Someday, someday we'll fix it down. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I forgive me. I had I, a college. I, I, I had a young lady working for me part time. Oh God, twenty years ago, going to U of A. She went to Cuba, 
And she said she goes into grocery stores and there's nothing but empty shelves. Right. Yeah. So what do they eat? Well, I don't know. But, they eat garbage. Uh, yeah. Um, at least a portion of every citizen's food needs are sold to them through ration books at heavily subsidized prices. The commun- <laughs> and Yeah, to further insult you, we're just going to make you pay for nothing. Uh, the communists have warned Cubans that they need to start working harder and expecting less from the government. <laughs> That's the answer. Just say it, it'll happen. <laughs> it's insanity. President Obama, are you listening? And another um, another this article appeared in my uh, newspaper on July 17, 2012, and the headline read, Communist Cuba Faces the Unthinkable, Cutting Jobs from Its Bloated Workforce. Everybody's yearning to get a job. Well, 90% of the people are. Some 10% maybe were communists. They get all the fringe benefits. Exactly. <laughs> the photo accompanying the article reported, um, at a state project to refurbish a decaying building in Old Havana, one worker paints a wall while two watch. And they showed a picture of it. Surprised they weren't Caltrans workers. <laughs> <laughs> um, a fourth sleeps in a wet wheelbarrow in a, sl- in a sliver of shade and two more smoke and chat on the curb. Here nearly everyone works for the state. And official unemployment is minuscule. I think that was it. Yeah, that was it. Well, there's no incentive to do anything. <laughs> no, that's the point. Yeah. You know, you only get twenty dollars. Yeah. And and well, I'll just finish. They're they got a funny. I think this is funny. Okay. In other words, everyone is guaranteed a job, but no one works at the job. But pay is so low that the Cubans like to joke that the state pretends to pay us, and we pretend to work. (laughs) We saw the picture. Guys sleeping in a wheelbarrow. (laughs) Oh man! The article says that the state employs ninety-five percent of the official workforce. Raúl Castro, Fidel's brother who took over for Riddell in 2006, was quoted as saying, without people feeling the need to work to make a living. <laughs> uh, his son in Canada is turning Canada into Cuba. Yeah, you're not kidding. Uh, sheltered by state regulations that are excessively patronistic and irrational, we will never stimulate a love for work. So I am making these comments public now in 2022, now that Obama is no longer president, but he's still in America's life, and way too much at that. We're down to the last 20. Okay. Now, let me return to my thoughts in 2017. But now in 2022, I still believe that we need to be wary of Obama as long as he is in the public eye. President Obama, are you paying attention? And lastly, in 2011, Cuba allowed the Cuban people to actually purchase real estate and a personal automobile. Now, there was no discussion about a heavy graduated income tax 
to force the Cubans to pay more in taxes. <laughs> you can't get blood from a stone. Twenty dollars <laughs> <laughs> a month. <laughs> everything, everything that's left belongs to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to laugh, but this I is know. what they're doing. They can't get out of it. They don't have any weapons. Well, like I said, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, President Obama, is this telling you something? One of the world's leading communists just announced that communism does not work. Oh, now this is this is Ralph Epperson gone to the mountaintop. Of course, I have been proving that in my classes and in the books and videos I have produced since 1973, but President Obama never attended any of my classes, nor has he, to the best of my knowledge, ever read any of my books or watched any of my videos. So I go to the top of the mountain and say, I, I've known this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't possibly know that communism is a total fraud. It has never worked anywhere in the world. So true. Okay, two more last stories. They were probably got 20 pages to go. I would like to bring uh, two more stories to your attention because they involve two more American communists. The first is the story of Dr. Bella Dodd, 1904 to 1969, a member of the National Committee of the Communist Party of the United States. Listen to this. She noticed that every time the National Committee couldn't reach a decision, one of their members would leave, go to the Waldorf Towers in New York City, and meet with a particular individual, later identified as Arthur Goldsmith. Dr. Dodd observed that every time Mr. Goldsmith made a decision, it was later confirmed by the Communist Party in Moscow, Russia. Can you believe that? Holy mackerel. In other words, this guy Goldsmith was a, a player. Yeah, he was. When he spoke, they listened. Yeah. Moscow they, even listened. Yeah. He was not only a member of the Communist Party, but an extremely wealthy American Capitalist, footnote, page 78, The Unseen Hand. The point is this. Why? How come the party didn't boot him out? Because he ran the party, that's why. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the second is what uh, Whitaker Chambers, 1901 Um, to 1961. He was a controversial individual for reasons that are not necessary to study but he was certainly known by many in the United States during his time. Have you heard that name? You believe no. uh, get, get some tissue ready, I'm serious. Where did you hear this story? Okay. It'll bring tears to your eyes. And he has an, uh, an interesting story to tell that is pertinent to our study. He wrote a book entitled Witness in 1952, which he discussed two major decisions in his life. Uh, you got the book? That's a big book. Wow, you're not kidding. Wow. It, the, the title is already on the, the yeah. yeah, okay. Witness. And I've got tape to hold it together. Mm-hmm. I read that book years ago, too. Wow. Okay. 
Okay, two decisions were bad. Okay, the first was when he joined the Communist Party of the United States in 1925. He reported that he worked his way through the party until he was a contact man between a powerful Soviet, meaning Russian, espionage apparatus in Washington, D.C., and a superior in New York City. Now, let's link that. He was in Washington, D.C., and he linked to New York, where he linked to Arthur, Arthur Goldschmidt. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, else, what else can you draw from that? <laughs> oh. Goldsmith didn't have a cell phone, I guess. Okay, we read that part. Joined a couple oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, let's see. He reported that he worked his way through the We read that. Okay, go with some more, Ralph. We got okay. espionage. Uh, I think we read that. We already got that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, very good. I'm sorry. Some of this stuff is funny, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, this will not be funny. I'm, single, I'm, I'm sorry. One single episode caused him to realize that the communists were wrong. And this episode caused him to leave the Communist Party. And he relates it how it happened. I date my break from uh, from a very casual happening. Get your tissue ready. I was sitting in our apartment. My daughter was in her high, high chair. I was watching her eat. My eye came to rest on the delicate convulsions in her ear, those intricate, perfect ears. I've heard this story before. It's amazing. Have you heard this before? Yeah, but read it. I know that they haven't. Uh, the thought passed through my mind. No, those ears were not created by any chance coming together of atoms in nature, the communist view. They could not. They could have been created only by immense design. The thought was involuntary and unwanted. If I had completed it, I should have had to say, "Design presupposes God." I didn't. I did not then know that at the moment. The finger of God was first laid upon my forehead, and he broke with with and I and he broke with communism. This is how he explained that a communist breaks because he must choose at last between irrecon- irreconcilable opposites. God or man, freedom or communism. Communism fails to grasp that. For it, the only possible answer to communism is uh, to communism is to challenge it. Faith in God or faith in man. And we, he went to his wife, who was also a member of the Communist Party, and explained his discovery, and she also pondered what he had seen. And because of this thought, they both left the party. Wow. How about you, Barack Obama? Have you looked at any human ears recently? 
<laughs> wow, including your own. Slow. <laughs> uh, so. Okay. I guess not, because you haven't renounced communism. So he hasn't had his ear experience, has he? No, yeah. Well, we don't know for sure. If he, if he has had one, he hasn't made it public. Uh, but the most frightening thing is that Mr. Chambers said was this. This is get your seatbelt on. Read this one, if I may, very slowly. Okay. We are leaving the winning world for the losing world. Was he right? Yeah. Yes, you get an interesting thought. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I will let you reflect on that question because it is what is facing America today. Would you agree with that? Amen. Yes, I would. Wow, Ralph, that was incredible. U.S. News and World Report, Communism, the Great Economic Failure. What's the date on that, Ralph? Okay, I'm sorry. That's a good thought. Uh, March 1st, 1982. Whoa. 82. That was a major time, you know, magazine. Yeah, I can see Nancy Reagan looks young in that picture. <laughs> Okay, we're finishing up now. Slow with this. Okay. There once was a very stupid man who tried to trick a very wise man. He put a peanut in its shell into his hand. And then clinched his fingers to conceal the peanut from view. You got it? Mm -hmm. Slow. He approached the wise man and said to him, I will ask you one question, and by your answer, I can tell if you are indeed a wise man. And then he showed the wise man his clenched fist. He asked the wise man this question. Is the peanut in my hand in the shell or is it outside the shell? Thinking that if the wise man said it is in the shell. Slow. He would crush the peanut and then open his hand to reveal that it was outside the shell. If the wise man said it is outside the shell, he would open his fingers 
to reveal that it was in this shell. The wise man thought for a, mo a few moments, long pause, <laughs> and then he said, Two more to go. Okay. Slow. The event is in your hand. That's interesting. You said that. Okay. Truly, wise men today will see that the future of their world is in their hands. Thank you so very much. Wow, Ralph. Wow, that's amazing. I like how you how it said the event is in your hand. Say it again. I like how it said the event is in your hand. It didn't say peanut. It said event, which is profound because, in other words, no matter what the peanut looks like, whatever I say, you're going to do the opposite. In other words, the event. Yeah, so it's what it says. It's in your hand. Right. You, you if I say it's A, you're going to show me B. Right. If I say it's B, you're going to show, show me A. And right. Yep. Exactly. Truly, the wise man today will see that the future of their world is in their hands. Thank you so very much. Oh. Man, oh, man. Well, Ralph, you've given us a lot to think about today, a lot to ruminate, a lot to consider and i you know i've i learned an awful lot tonight i really did and i had a lot of things confirmed to me tonight too so i want to thank you for that well it, it, as i always say with you you've been very generous and kind with me and allow me to do this uh, having uh, normally uh, uh, you do an interview and i'm not doing an interview i'm showing this stuff and I, you're and I, I think i said from the very beginning the reason i prepare these things is that you can read it and see it at the same time, or hear it and see it, mm -hmm. and you retain more. Hopefully, you know, oh, I, I never thought about the peanut story. That made sense. Yeah, and exactly. That is in your hand, mm -hmm. and truly wise men will see that the future of our world is in their hands. Right, and decisions that they make. Yes. Yeah. In other words, this country is going communist now. Yeah. We're undergoing a, a, a Trotskyite Marxist communist revolution mm -hmm. with some violence, but that's past. That, that, they had have the reason for it. But now what they're doing is they're looting. There, there was, there's maybe a hundred of them crashed into one department store and just about emptied it out. I saw that, yeah. It, they're, they're walking up to people. There's a lady going down the, the stairs slow with the right hand on the rail, and some guy comes behind her and knocks her down to the level and then kicks her and beats her. Uh -huh. The guy stands there 
standing at the intersection, and a guy walks up to him and knocks him down and cold cocks him. Yeah. Just, what is that? What? How can you hate that much? And the well, guy just stands there, and you know, well, I guess I had to. Well, Scripture says, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So, love is a thing of the past. One more time. Because iniquity, iniquity will abound, the love of the many will grow cold. What's the word iniquity mean? It means uh, awful sin, awful and evil sin, abominations. Say it again. <clears throat> Because iniquity shall abound, the love of the many will grow cold. Amen. That's, that's what's it. Yeah. And people stand by and watch this. Yeah, I but know. It's... The, the, uh, YouTube, is that it? Is showing, interestingly, oh yeah, by the way, we got a, something announcement to make uh, uh, about the, uh, the flag. Oh, yeah. Okay. You want to do that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, folks, um, President Trump was in Ohio a couple of weekends ago now, and when he stood there, okay, here we go. This was the flag that he was standing in front of. You see the stripes behind him? Yes. Well, that blue field or the field that's in the back of him to the, his left, to our right, yes. that's where the stars are supposed to be. Yes. And there's no stars on that flag. No stars. Okay, so what does that mean? So we did, a, Ralph and I did a little internet studying here and um, found out from a couple of military people what that means because the military is told what it means. Oh, excuse me, is taught what it means. And Ralph, if you want to, let's see, I don't know. I can't see it that well. Okay. You want me to just to read it? Yeah, I got it. There were no stars. Okay, move it now to more t towards your left. No, it's okay. Size wide there. You got to okay. hold it right there if you can. All right. There got were it. no stars on the flag last night as President Trump entered and exited the stage. For those who don't know what an American flag without the stars means, you have to ask someone who's been in the military, raise it. The simple answer is surrender. American flag without the stars tells your enemy that further aggression on their part will mean total annihilation, complete. Okay. Okay, so it continues. So here, complete. Yeah, good. Now hold it again. Destruction or obliteration. If you're the enemy and you choose to surrender, you will be treated well. President Trump was sending deep state a message. Raise it. As a communication specialist in the Marines, this flag was taught to us. It means no deals. If the enemy is captured after it is flown, death is the only condition. Hold on a second. There's a little more. Okay. So if this flag was at the rally last night, the enemies had until the end of the rally to surrender. Now, interesting. That there's there's an adjunct to that. I guess is the right word. Okay. Donald Trump. Now this 
This is the problem. We don't have it officially. We've got it with codes and, and leaks and right. people that we trust that believe they have an insight. But mm -hmm. the, the, the draining of the swamp is going to start tomorrow. Tomorrow's the first of... Uh, the first of October. It's when it's supposed to start. Yeah. Yeah, and we should know more by the 3rd or 4th. Right. And I believe that major figures that we know that are living and walking and talking today will be found, charged, tried, and punished. Right. Major figures. Right. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, Ralph. Do you, I don't know if you have a cell phone or not, but the last few days, my cell phone's been doing weird things. Uh, today, I went to make calls, and all of a sudden, there was no signal on Verizon, none whatsoever. And it came back after a while, but um, and it's just it's just weird the things that are happening. It's almost like these they're conducting a test run. And we've been told that there's going to be 10 days of darkness where there'll be no media or anything else like that. So I think that they, they're running these little tests to try to get us used to this. So, Well, once again, it's got something to do if these clues are right with, and you name the, the two holidays the Jewish people celebrate. Rosh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yeah. And they're, what, 10 days apart? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when is the first one already? Well, occurred? the first one's passed, yeah. How many days ago? Oh, yeah. it was last, um, it started last Sunday, Sunday at noon, at, uh, at sundown. Well, that was, so yeah. that's. So this Sunday, so about Wednesday, right? Yeah. It, which is the 3rd of October. Yeah. Well, no, right the 5th of October, yeah. I want you to know the sacrifice I made today because I was not able to listen to <laughs> Kiss and Waters or, uh, or uh, but I've got a basketball game that starts at 6 30, I think, and so I got a chance to watch that. Good. Good. And, and I can also watch Chuck for tonight later. But honestly, this is very important to me, and I hope that we get some people to pay attention to this right. and try to you know, I, I, I'm sure they can see that we're a bunch of amateurs trying to educate. But I want you to remember this. During the days of the American Revolution, there were no talk shows and no, no cell phones. Right. People bought printing presses and printed and put flyers out. And they sent out our troubadours with the message, it's 8 o'clock and all's well. Whatever it was, mm -hmm. uh, and people in public meetings would learn what the truth was, and right. so that's what we are. We're we're, we're pamphleteers, doing the best we can with a limited, in fact, no budget at all, and just trying to get some evidence out. And right. we're using Zoom, which is no cost to us, mm -hmm. and you can you're going to update it, up, upload it, and we'll get it on tonight. The, mm -hmm. tonight. Yeah. yeah. I thank you so much. Well, thank you, Ralph. And I want to thank the audience, too, because, you know, if you guys weren't out there, there would be nobody to give this news to. And, yeah. and, you know, and this teaching that Ralph gave us tonight, you know, 
So we thank you for being there. We thank you for, um, you know, your patience. You know, we were going to do this Wednesday night, but things happened and we had to do it today. So um, anyway, thank you, audience. Thank you for being a faithful audience and a loving audience, too. I'll tell you, I've, I've talked to several of you, and you're very, a very loving audience. And um, all I can say is that if you have relatives or friends that have, have never heard this stuff, uh, well, there's stuff I haven't heard that I heard tonight. There's stuff that you haven't heard that you heard tonight. But share it with people. Share it with your relatives, your loved ones. Uh, you know, you can't force them to watch, but say, hey, there's an interesting link here. Check this out. You know, and um, who knows? Maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll, maybe we'll finally wake some people up. That would be really nice, huh, Ralph? Yeah, and that's, we're using Barack Obama because if he is a Marxist, we're going through right now in America a Marxist communist revolution. Right. It's a, it's a Trotskyite, a, a Menshevik one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we've had some uh, 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 Bolshevik episodes as well. Yeah, so that's right. They tried to burn, burn buildings down in city halls and taking yeah. statues down. That's right. Can I, can I do one last, make one last comment? Sure, go ahead. I'm going to have to find the right book. Hold on. This was the book by... Manny Johnson, on page 13, let's read what he said. The title of the chapter is uh, Subverting Negro Churches. He said, created doubt, lack of confidence. It's one short paragraph. Suspicion, setting up situations that bring about racial bitterness, violence, and conflict, putting forth demands so unrealistic that race relations are worsened, attacking everybody in disagreement as reactionaries, Ku Kluxers, or fascists. Wow. He said that in 1958. Did someone in America call 76 million people fascists? Yeah, and racist, too. Who did that? Uh, Joseph Biden, (laughs) (laughs) J-O-S-E-F. I wonder. I wonder if he ever read, maybe he did record. You, those who are in disagreement, you call Fascists. Yeah. And I would say that he said all of us uh, Trumpers, MAGAs, are fascists. 76 million of us. Yeah. He didn't say, well, there's a couple, three or four that don't, don't, all of you people. Yeah, that's why we need to get rid of that lot, the whole lot that's in there. You know, I'm advocating elections, (laughs) not violence. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Ralph, I want to thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Once again, God bless you, and we'll talk again later. Definitely, definitely. Hang on, hang on as, after you close, if you will. I will. Okay, folks, we're going to say good night. I know the sun, still, still, sun is still shining, but it's getting to be 5 o'clock here past that. So, uh, hey, um, God bless you all, and we'll, we'll see you next week, okay? Good night, y'all. Thank <laughs> you.